If you have your Bibles, you could open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In this current series, we've been looking at the question, where do we go from here? Something we saw several weeks back is that we are to have the mind of Christ. But if we are to be honest, we don't always have the mind of Christ. And and why? What, What is the cause of that? Well, if we don't have the mind of Christ, we have the mind of something else, something that seeks to be in his place. That thing is an idol or idols. In our thinking, in our choices, in our actions, rather than following Christ, we follow something else. We saw several Sundays ago that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is a call to put away idols and idolatry, which may seem shocking to some, but it is in fact a realistic view of the way our hearts actually operate. John Calvin put it, our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. When you look at your heart, it is always putting out something to be put in the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned this the last couple Sundays, but I want to do it again today. What is an idol? An idol is something we make to take the place of God. We know we have made an idol when the possible loss of something or someone creates an inappropriately dramatic reaction in us. The easiest route to finding out the truth about what our idols are, is to look at the feelings we have. What gets us upset? What cheers us? What causes great anger or disappointment? What stresses us out? What drives us or makes us anxious? In other words, what is blackmailing us into believing something must result or someone must respond in a certain way before we can be at peace and be joyful? Naming our idols is important because as long as we are possessed by them, we will not be free. Only God can give us freedom. Only the freedom which comes with enjoying the good things in life as gifts rather than idols can give us peace and joy. Well, if we don't shut down, well, let's put it, if we do shut down, if we shut down the factory that's producing idols, What do we put in its place? You can't simply just stop. Nature abhors a vacuum. What do you put in its place? Well, I suggested last Sunday that part of the answer is vocabulary. And I mentioned that in chapter six of Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll, Alice, as in Alice in Wonderland, meets Humpty Dumpty, whom she recognizes immediately from the poem, um, the nursery rhyme, you know, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty is a bit irritable, but he turns out to have some thought-provoking notions about language. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be the master, that's all. I mentioned last week, this was published in 1871, in December of 1871, 150 years ago. It is something that surrounds us today. We find that words have been redefined and that certain words are banned altogether. 
that we are not to use them anymore. As one person put it, those who would redefine reality by redefining words would be our masters. And that's precisely what Humpty Dumpty said. It isn't simply changing the meaning of words, it's becoming the master. Part of the problem we have as Christians is that somehow we imagine that the Christian faith is um, doctrine, theology, some abstraction. It's, it's much more theoretical, I think, than practical. These abstractions are communicated by words, which means you have to have a certain vocabulary. But some would say, yeah, but in order to know the right vocabulary, you have to go to seminary, you have to learn Greek, you have to learn Hebrew, you have to read theology, and then you can do these things. Um, I think the average Christian feels unqualified to be able to speak clearly about the Christian faith. I think that's because we have a faulty view of the gospel. I think words have been redefined and we've lost our way. It's kind of weird that people think this, that Christians think this, because this is not what we find in scripture. The Bible is not a dictionary. The Bible is not a textbook. The Bible is not a theological work, which means in part that you don't have to have advanced education, graduate level. You don't have to have a knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. You don't have to have a bunch of theology books at your disposal. These aren't bad to have, okay? They can be quite helpful. But stop and think a minute. Look over the history of the church since the time of Jesus. How many Christians over the past 20 centuries have had these things? Advanced education, a knowledge of Hebrew and Greek, and theological works at their disposal. I think it would be generous to say 1%. That's 99% of Christians have not had this. How's the church survived? How have Christians kept their faith? How have they remained Christians? This, they, they have survived, the church has survived, and they have remained in the faith because they have embraced what the Bible has given them. And what is that? Stories which define and illustrate the truths of the gospel. And I would suggest to you that we are to get rid of idols, we are to rid ourselves of idols and idolatry, and we are to reacquire or acquire biblical literacy. Oftentimes we think of the stories of the Bible as being for children in Sunday school, but in fact they are illustrations, they are definitions of the words we find elsewhere, particularly in the New Testament. Today I would suggest that there is another route, another avenue to a right vocabulary and that is metaphor or analogy. A metaphor is a figure, figure of speech that directly refers to one thing by mentioning another. An analogy is a comparison between two things, typically for the purpose of explanation or clarification. Today I want to look at one word that we find in the New Testament and the metaphors and the analogies that are used. That word is church. Like many other words, which are part of the Christian vocabulary, the word church has been redefined, and I think we have lost sight of what it is 
in the process. So that for many, what comes to mind when you say church is the building. This is the building, this is the church. That's not the case. Or the service, as in let's go to church. There are various metaphors that come to mind. Um, I just want to look at one today, and it's found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a passage that we've looked at in the past, so this will be review. Um, but to give some content or context to what we're looking at, Paul is in Ephesus. He has written them, they have written back, and not having a postal system, the letter was carried by one a person or persons to Paul in Ephesus. And there they, they gave reports about what's going on in the church in Corinth. And what you find is that the church in Corinth is divided, and this shows up particularly in public worship. So chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, that's a quarter of the book, deal with public worship. What the Corinthians are doing that is wrong. The passage that I read before communion is from chapter 11, in which Paul is correcting what they've been doing about the Lord's Supper. They've been doing it in the wrong way. And so he recalls the words of Jesus, and he seeks to correct the behavior of the Corinthians in public worship. In chapter 12, Paul writes about the spiritual ones. If you look in the NIV, verse number 1, now about spiritual gifts, um, Side note, whenever you see now about in 1 Corinthians, Paul's responding to a statement made by the Corinthians in their letter. It begins in chapter 7, uh, and then we find it going on throughout the rest of the book. Here Paul is talking about unity and diversity, and he begins by talking about the Trinity. There are different kinds of gifts. You have the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, the same Lord, different kinds of workings, the same God. Rather than focusing on the idea of being the same, Paul is dealing with the issue of being different, of diversity. There is unity. We find this in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet there is also diversity, one God, three persons. Paul now shifts the metaphor, beginning in verse number 12. And the metaphor he uses is of the human body that there is unity, but there is also diversity. So first he establishes the basic analogy, then he emphasizes diversity, followed by an emphasis on unity. I think if we were writing 1 Corinthians, we would do it the other way around. We would focus more on unity and then talk about diversity. But that's precisely the problem the Corinthians are having. They only want people like them to be in public worship. So when poor people come in, they, 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 they go ahead and have communion without these poor people. Anyway, so Paul is arguing that even though the body is one, it has many members. And Paul is so concerned to point out that there is a real need for diversity. Let's begin by looking at verses 10, I'm sorry, verses 12, 13, and 14 here in 1 Corinthians 12. The body is a unit though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. 
For we were, all, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. You'll notice in verse number 12, he does A, B, B, A. That's the body is the unit, has many members, the parts are many, and then A again, there is in fact one body. Verse 13 shows us that we became one because we were baptized by one spirit into one body and given the same spirit to drink. Um, I think people would not be surprised at what Paul writes here in verse number 13. Um, We know that what distinguishes someone who is a believer from someone who is not a believer is that they, in fact, have the spirit of God. Um, But what does he mean by being baptized and drinking? It seems that he is mixing some metaphors here. Well, baptism refers to being covered. When you are immersed, you are covered with water. And drinking points to being filled. You drink, you take something in. So it's something that is outward as well as something that is inward. In either case, the important aspect is the spirit And the unity we have is that we have the same spirit. The Holy Spirit has baptized us and has filled us. We are one body. But there is diversity. Look at verses 15 through 20. If the foot should say, I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Here, using the analogy of the human body, Paul says, listen, there have to be different parts. There have to be differences among those who are the people of God. And yet, we're all part of one body. We are the church. He points out four things. The foot and the hand, these are the extremities. Feet at the bottom, hands at the end of your arms. And then the two are sensory organs. The eye, you see, the sense of sight and the ear that you also hear. If one part of the body says, listen, I'm not like the other part, I'm not part of the body, well, that's ridiculous. The eye can't say, well, because I'm not an ear, I'm not part of the body. That, we would say, is foolishness, It's, it's silliness. In the same way, in the church, there are differences. And one would even say, There have to be differences. For all the differences, though, we are to be one. Look, if you would, at verses 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable we pre- are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, 
but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Having spoken of the diversity, Paul now pushes for unity. In the previous section, some were saying they weren't part of the body because they weren't like other people, they weren't like others. Okay. Now, Paul imagines, in a sense, the opposite dialogue, where part of the body says to the, another part, I don't need you. you know, that the head, in fact, would say to the feet, I don't need you. I'm perfectly fine on my own. And as I think we would imagine, that is quite ridiculous. He argues that the weaker parts of the body are indispensable. And the ones that we think are less honorable are in fact treated with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty. What's he talking about? Well, the weaker parts of the body that are indispensable are those that need to be protected by bone structure. So you have a brain, but you have a skull. And if you didn't have a skull the brain would be incredibly vulnerable and probably would not survive. The heart and the lungs are protected by your rib cage. We need them. They are indispensable, but they need protection. So one would say that they are the weaker parts of the body for all the incredible work that they do, pumping blood, cleaning our air as we breathe in and out. They need protection. They are weaker. The sexual organs, the private parts, are those that we treat with honor and special modesty. Other parts need no special treatment. You don't have to cover your hands. You can if you need to, but they don't need special treatment. But the rest of your body, uh, those parts that we see as private, they need to be covered up. There needs to be special modesty. And then Paul makes an important uh, statement, I think, uh, sort of a pre-conclusion conclusion, that if one part suffers, the whole suffers with it. Every part suffers with it. If you've ever had a toothache, you know this to be the case. That the small part of your body in your mouth can cause such pain that it affects the entire body. But now we come to the point Paul wants to make. Verse number 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. The church is a body. That's a metaphor, okay? It has different parts, different manifestations of the Spirit, but they are one. Paul asks a series of questions. Are we all the same? No. Do we all have the same manifestation? No. But we are one in Christ. We are the body of Christ. Think about that a moment. Is that not an amazing statement? One could say, I wish that the Lord Jesus were alive here on earth today in our midst. And I think Paul would say, he is. The church is, in fact, the body of Christ. In Ephesians 5, we read, Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. The church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of the church.
So what is a church? It's a body, but it is a community of diverse people, of different people, from all different sorts of levels, education, economic, uh, racial, everything. We are, in fact, one in Christ. We are a community. We are a body. This is seen on at least two different levels. The first is what we would call the universal church. All people who have put their faith in God, from Abraham up to the present, they belong to the body of Christ. They are God's people. And we find throughout the New Testament various metaphors that are used to describe this body. The bride of Christ. We find this in Revelation. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. A kingdom of priests, Peter tells us. A holy nation. Again in Revelation, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. All of these metaphors, if you think about it, they all point to a central truth, and that is that we are all in Christ. We are organically related to Christ. We have union with Christ, in Christ, in the Lord, and in Him. This is a phrase that Paul uses more than 150 times in his letters. There is a bond. We belong to Christ. We are bound to Him, but we are also bound to each other. Jesus told the disciples, on this rock, I will build my church. The church belongs to him. So this is a universal church, but we also have local congregations or the local church. That is, people meeting in a particular place. In the New New Testament, the epistles, we have the church in Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi, and the list goes on. But This is where many Christians get into trouble, I fear. That is, they take passages that are written to the local congregation and they make the application individual. Many of the second person that we find, you, are in fact plural. But in English, unfortunately, we say you singular, you plural, and it's hard oftentimes to distinguish. And when you factor in in our culture that it's very individualistic, um, I think we overlook the congregation, and we think only of ourselves. Let me give you just a couple of examples, which are quite powerful, I think. Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The you there is plural. You, the church, you are to put on the armor of God. I think for many years I read this and I thought, that's me, Damon, I need to put on the armor of God so I can withstand against uh, the wiles of the devil, as it is in the King James. Um, No, Paul's not speaking to individuals as such, he's speaking to a congregation. You as a congregation are to put on the whole armor of God. And then in Philippians chapter 1, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God began a work in you. In, in me? That's great. God began a work in David. That's not what Paul is saying. God began a work in his church. Okay. Our focus oftentimes tends to be more on the individual. I found this really striking. The word saint, singular, appears only one time in the New Testament. 
And in fact, uh, the NIV makes it a plural, okay, because uh, the ESV has greet every saint in Christ Jesus, singular. But the NIV has greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The word saints, plural, appears 61 times. One singular, 61 plural. And yet in our thinking, when we think of the church, it's like that's a place we go to, that's a building. We don't think of it as a body that we are a part of. The image we have is that of the body. We are the body of Christ. We are members of the body of Christ. We are not members of a club. We are parts of a body. And by definition, the parts are all different from each other. They have to be for the body to function. Question that may come up. If you have two Christians together, because Jesus said if two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in their midst. If you have two or three Christians together, are they a church? No. No. The church is more specific and definite than that. In Matthew chapter 18, uh, the section on discipline, if someone sins against you, you go to that person. And if he or she won't listen to you, then in fact you take two or three others. And if they won't listen, then you take the matter to the church. So you and the two others, you're not the church. The church is something much more specific. And if they don't listen to the church, then they are to be excommunicated, put outside the church. The church requires institutional structure. And here comes one of those dreaded words, institution. We live in a world in which people love spirituality, but hate religion, particularly organized religion. Anything that is seen as institutional is seen as wrong. There's structure, uh, there are rules, um, there's no spontaneity, you have to do things in a particular way. Whereas if you're spiritual, just sort of hang loose and you can do whatever it is that you want to do. You, you're much more individual, you don't need other people, you can be much more spontaneous. Now, it is true that in different points in church history, the church has become institutionalized and in many ways has almost died as a result. Habits have developed over time. And people keep doing things the same way for no particular reason or simply because someone began doing it years ago. I've told this story before. Um, A pastor went home with a family after Sunday service uh, to have lunch with them. And the wife had made a ham. And she brought out the ham. And he noticed something quite unusual. you had the ham, but you also had a part of the ham that was cut off and set to the side. It was quite good, he enjoyed it, but he was really intrigued. Why, why did you do that? Why did you cut off that part and put it to the side? And she said, you know, I don't know. My mom always did it that way. So she called her mom while the pastor was there. and said, mom, you know, in our family, whenever we do a ham, we cut off the end and put it at the side. Why do we do that? And her mom said, I don't know. Your grandmother always did that. So they call grandma. Grandma, why is it that when we 
cook a ham in our family, we cut off the end and put it next to it rather than doing the whole ham. And the grandmother said, well, my oven was too small for the ham, so I had to cut off part so it would fit. But then it became a tradition. And the church is certainly filled with traditions that in the scheme of things really don't make sense. And so people would say, let's get rid of the institutional, everyone just do their own thing. No, we can't do that because in fact we are the body of Christ. The church is also organized in the same way that the body is organized. The body isn't just pieces thrown together haphazardly. Um, It is in fact quite structured. It is very organized. It has, what well, the church is to have leadership. And I would argue that this isn't spelled out in as great a detail as some would imagine. Um, but we find that there are to be elders. There can be deacons, deaconesses. Um, we're not told anything specifically about church membership. What we find, in fact, is in the matter of church discipline, you have those who are outside the church, and those who are inside the church. It's fairly ambiguous, but we still have the sense that there is to be organization and there is to be leadership. The social structure of the church comes from, it is to come from every strata of society. On the day of Pentecost, what we read about is a cutting across of age divisions, gender divisions, racial divisions, class divisions, and nationalities. Peter quotes from the book of Joel in the Old Testament, your sons and daughters will prophesy. So both boys and girls. Okay? Your young men will see visions. Your old men will, see, will dream dreams. So young and old. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. When Peter is fu- finished preaching, the people are like, what should we do? We have killed Jesus. What should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. Some would say, how can this be? Certainly in the Jewish society, this, this is almost scandalous. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, with the presence of the Holy Spirit, the divisions between us are to be gone. Men and women can worship together. Young and old can worship together. Rich and poor can worship together. Those who are educated and those who are not. All of these have been taken away by the gift of the Spirit. As I said at the beginning, some people imagine when you say, let's go to church. For them, church is the worship service. Um, Why do we get together on Sundays? Why do we gather on Sundays? Remember, for the Corinthians, this was the problem. They were gathering on Sundays and just making a complete mess of public worship. So why do we get together on Sunday? Going and meeting together with God's people is a response to what is true. It is a response to what is true. I would remind you of what we've seen in the past about prayer and worship. Both are a response to God. In prayer, God has begun the conversation, and in prayer, we respond. We tend to think of it the other way around. We call out to God, and then he answers us. 
The reality is he arranges the circumstances of our lives such that in our despair or in our neediness, we cry out to him and he then answers us. But he begins the conversation. By the way, it need not always be negative. There are times in which God speaks, I think, wonderful words of love to us and of comfort and we respond with thanksgiving. This means, among other things, that the burden of what to talk about when we're praying to God isn't on us. It's like, okay, I gotta pray, but um, what, what, what should I pray about? What should I say? Well, God began the conversation. You should respond to him. In worship, God has acted in various ways and we respond in worship. In Revelation four and five, um, we are told of those who worship the lamb they worship God and the Lamb for what they have done. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Okay? He began the conversation. He began the process. And by your will, they were created and have their being. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God, for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Again, the, the incredible diversity there. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. We meet on Sundays to worship God, but we are not the primary actors. Okay, God is. Our worship is a response to him. Uh, in a church that I attended once, I saw in their liturgy, it was all described in terms of what God is doing. God calls us. God cleanses us, the prayer of confession. God consecrates us. God communes with us, communion. God commissions us in the sermon. So when we pray, when we sing, when we give, have the preaching when we read or listen to those who are reading when we have communion baptism these are all a response to God we are responding to him worship is God's action and our faithful reception of that action and our response the initiative rests with him and not with us we should not carry this burden around with us as though we met what should we do we should respond to God so when we gather for public worship, it is a response, a true response to what is true. First of all, about God, and secondly, about the, his people, that is the church. But is Sunday worship all there is to being a congregation or being a church? Um, why should I be involved in any way with a local congregation? It is a response to what is true. It is living out what is true about God and what is true about ourselves. God has planned the church that is something better for us so that with other people who are God's people, we can in fact be changed we can, in fact, be sanctified, if you wish, be improved as God's people. The church, in fact, should be a check on our individualism. 
It's like, I don't need the church. I'm just going to stay home and read my Bible, pray by myself. That's all I need. Um, there's a wonderful verse in Proverbs as iron sharpens iron, so one friend sharpens another. It is as we get together as God's people that we can, in fact, correct each other, instruct each other, and learn from one another. We are under construction. None of us is perfect. None of us is, in fact, a finished product. If you read Paul's letters, that becomes abundantly clear. He's writing to these churches because they have problems and he is seeking to correct them. Um, I think this is from G.K. Chesterton. The cause which is blocking all progress today is the subtle skepticism which whispers in a million ears that things are not good enough to be worth improving. Instead, he, that is G.K. Chesterton, wants to seek to remind men that things must be loved first and improved afterwards. People want the perfect church. They want a church filled with perfect people. Well, there is no such place. We are to love the people of God and in our love, by God's grace, we will each grow and be improved. I would say that people need the church. We are the body. We need each other. And if we separate ourselves from the church, then we are blocking the way that God wants to improve us, to cause us to grow, to be more like the Lord Jesus. Imagine cutting off your right hand and imagining that your right hand over by itself somewhere could in fact improve, that it could grow, that it could become more skillful. That's not possible. It needs the rest of the body to be able to function. The church has a responsibility to stretch us, to push us to grow, but also it provides us a place where we can serve one another. Over the years, I've noticed that people have said at certain points in the service, they have felt the presence of God in a specific way, in a very powerful way. Um, and interestingly enough, it's not usually during the sermon. Um, it's not like Damon was preaching and I just felt something. It is during the singing or when we hear the reading from the Old Testament or the New Testament or someone speaks of a prayer request or during communion that we have in a very special way a sense of the presence of God. I think it is when we gather together as God's people that we can find the Spirit of God working in a powerful way. I think we would prefer if we could do that on our own. We don't have to leave the house don't have to interact with people. It's just me and my Bible and, and God, and I'm okay. And that's just not the way it works. That is not the way that it works. The church is the body of Christ. God planned it. Christ died for it and established it. The Spirit of God is building it up as we gather together. We are the body of Christ. Again, if you were to ask the average person and perhaps even the average Christian, they would see the church as the building 
or even as the worship service. Let's go to church. Well, worship is important, but that's not the church. We, as the people of God, are the church. This pandemic has been particularly trying for the church in that we've not been able to see each other. We've communicated electronically, not quite the same. And perhaps in the process, we've lost sight of something really important. We need to regain that Christian vocabulary. And in this particular case, one of metaphor, one of analogy. We are like a human body. But more than that, we are the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is our tendency to want to be in charge. In the words of Humpty Dumpty, to be the master. We want to say what words mean. And we've lost sight of something incredibly important. We are not the primary actors. We are responding to your actions. How easily, how quickly we lose sight of that. And something as basic as prayer, we, th we imagine somehow we initiate the conversation. Perhaps in worship, we imagine that we are performing for an audience of one, for you. And we have forgotten that you're God. You're the Lord Almighty, not us. You begin all things. And we are merely responding by your grace to the wonderful grace you have shown in our lives. We live in a culture that idolizes individualism. The individual is seen as supreme. But Christ came and established the church, not simply a collection of individuals, but a body, his bride. He gave his life for his church. I suspect I've not said anything new today, that we know all this, but we have forgotten it in the, in the past year or so. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would drive these truths home to our hearts. May we think on them and recognize the implications and what it is we are called to do, to love one another, to work together to be the body of Christ here at Melrose. I thank you for bringing us together today. We look forward to the time when more will join us. We're grateful that we are here today. We remember Tom's birthday coming up this week and we are so grateful for his playing, and what it adds to our worship, our response to you. As we leave this place today, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We thank you for your love and for showing your love through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.